BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The star and the namesake of the Victor Davis Hanson show is, of course, Victor Davis Hanson. And he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We'll talk about it later, as we always do. Hey, there could be some first-time listeners here. There ought to be. And victorhanson.com is the place where Victor hangs his hat on the web. And he's got a lot of his write, original writings there, exclusive writings there. And we're going to talk a little more about that later. A lot to talk about today. And I think the first issue we'll, we'll look at is feminism. Feminism. It's the 60th anniversary of the of feminine uh, mystique. And there's a great piece. <laughs> well, Naomi, our friend Naomi uh, yes. Schaefer-Riley has a, a wonderful op-ed up that I think it looks at, hey, after all these years, why are women still so unhappy? And let's get Victor's thoughts on that. We'll be right back, folks. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Okay, we're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, our um, yeah, Naomi, who I've I've known for for, for many years. Actually, Naomi's dad uh, was my uh, political science professor at Holy Cross way way back. David Schaefer. Um, her husband is uh, J- Jason Riley, as many people know him at the from the Wall Street Journal and Manhattan Institute. He's on Fox a lot. So anyway, Naomi. She's a wonderful, wonderful writer. She has a piece up in the New York Post, Why 60 Years of Feminism Has Not Made Women Happier. And this is based off of the 60th anniversary of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. And uh, I, 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 I'm not going to, I have to read a little thing here. <laughs> this surveys have, have been done, you know, that um, 
about, about the happiness level after all this year of, of, of uh, women. And here's what Naomi writes, only a little more than half, 58.6% of uh, women respond, yes, what are they responding to? All things considered, has feminism benefited American families? That's the question. A little more than half say they, yes. What's interesting, though, back to Naomi, is the people who said yes also tend to be among the least happy and fulfilled. In survey after survey, it turns out that people who espouse a secular worldview, people who identify as liberals, and people who never attend religious services report the lowest levels of personal satisfaction, but they also report the highest levels of support for feminist ideals. Indeed, as feminism's Influence has grown over the past half century. Women have become less happy. Victor, you know, this is not just a throwaway thing in a in a small column. This has been a huge cultural force, and the consequences are significant. I don't know why this does not get more attention. I'm glad Naomi wrote this column. Uh, I think it's important. What are your thoughts about the consequences of 60 years of, uh, of American feminism? Well, there's innate consequences of the biological and cultural differences between men and women. And then there's the particular American adaptation to that. And what she's saying is, don't say believe what men say, but when you look at various polls or surveys, what women say, that they're not happy. And the reason they're, they're not happy, they're having a number of cultural, civilizational burdens put on them under the guise of Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem's idea of liberation. In other words, what she's saying is that if they have a natural impulse to marry and have children, and if the society puts a pressure on them, either cultural, i.e. you're not really fulfilled or you're not really a success unless you've got a title or uh, letters after your name, degrees, and you're making this amount of money, or you're not really fulfilled unless you're out of the house, then at the same time, there is an instinctual idea to have children. How do you balance those two things? And if you add to that equation that most social scientists, even left-wingers, agree that when the illegitimacy rate went from 10 to 15% in the 40s and 50s up to as high as 50 to 70, depending on the cultural or racial group. And the lack of two-parent households and illegitimacy is skyrocketed. So what, what they're getting at is that much of our social turmoil, whether that's defined as poor educational systems, less parental control, higher crime rates, higher mental health issues, all of those, in a sense, are a result of not having a two-parent household with one parent there to nurture that child and to be with that child in those very important formative years, but to, and she uses the word socialist, that it's hand-in-glove, i.e. feminism, with the socialist movement where those tasks are, are farmed out to the government. So the government comes in and raises your children in daycare or pre-daycare or pre-kindergarten, whatever term, and life of Julia all the way through, and the parent doesn't have control, and you end up with something that we saw with Yunkin and the Virginia school board fiascos. So that's one of her arguments, and I think it's true. The other thing is that we 
innately there is a desire of humans to reproduce themselves that's in in our dna and it has to be or the country will and the nation or the world will implode and so how do you balance that idea that women have children or what the transgender movement says it's women that have children and that requires a burden and it's also a pleasure and it's a responsibility and it's a wonderful thing for women and how do you accommodate that when at the same time you're putting other pressures on them to be away from home and to to be doing something other than to raise children so that creates a sort of schizophrenia and it's very hard and that means that women work they get up and there's a chance that they're not going to be married their entire life they have to go to work they come home and guess what their husband comes home and they somebody's got to do the dishes they don't really share because men being men they have additional housework they have children and they have the job and they're getting frazzled and so she's arguing that there has to be some accommodation psychologically socially culturally for women who say i'm educated i'm aware and i'm my primary responsibility is producing good citizens because my husband is going to be the primary breadwinner. It doesn't mean I can't have a job, but there's going to be large portions of my life when I'm going to have my primary responsibility. It's very interesting to me because I might have mentioned before that I had a grandfather who had three daughters on this house that I live in, and he thought that they wouldn't be able to take care of his little 135-acre ranch, so he sent them to Stanford University. And they got not only bachelor's, but advanced degrees. And then they came home. And how did they balance in the 1950s both? And in the case of my mother, I won't get into her sister, but you know, she had two BAs from University of Pacific and Stanford and a JD from Stanford in 1946. And what did she do? She came home and where she came back to a little tiny farmhouse, 800 square feet on the corner of the ranch with my father, who made $2,100 a year farming and was a part-time teacher. And she had three kids, and she did not use that Stanford degree. If you could use it, I don't think a woman with a Stanford law degree in the 1950s got much of a job other than being a cleric. But she was 40 years old before she went back to work, and uh, we were in the second and third grade. But I, I have the most wonderful memories of being aged, you know, from my first memories at four all the way up to, you know, eight nine with my mother home because wow she would and introduce composers to us and we had to dance with her around the room to Tchaikovsky or Peter and the Wolf or we sang songs from South Pacific or she taught us how to play baseball or she taught us how to ride bicycles or she taught us the scientific names of plants and how to garden and then she went to work and she got up at five in the morning. She drove all the way to Fresno in these old beat up cars and she came broke down half the time, it seemed. And she came home and we were came home alone. We came back to the farm. In those days, it was perfectly safe. I had wonderful grandparents that we rode our little bikes around the ranch back to my grandparents' house. And we came home and she came home absolutely worn out at what six o'clock. What what kind of legal work was she doing? She was she a principal. Was... There was a new, she was 40 years old, and the governor, Pat Brown, created a new court called the 5th District 
State Court of Appeals. And there was a wonderful judge named Phil Conley who was married to Phoebe McClatchy, and they were hiring, and she went up there and applied. And she was 40 years old, and she'd been out of law school for 17, 18 years. And he hired her, and that was just unheard of. And she was the court attorney in charge of his law clerk or his law assistant. And then she did that for 16 years until she was in her early 50s. And then she was appointed by Jerry Brown as a superior court justice. And then three years later, she was a, I think she was the second or third woman to be a state court of appeals justice. And then she died very early in her 60s from a brain tumor. And she was on the state court of appeals on the fifth district. And she had a wonderful life and career. But she tried to balance both of them, and she she really took a huge chunk out of her life to do that. And so every time people, but I would be in a crowd or something, or people would be over young lawyers, and what she did was she had kind of a mentoring system in, in the Central Valley. So if you were a young woman and you graduated from Bolt Hall or Hastings or San Joaquin College at Law or McGeorge, and you wanted to be a law clerk in that period when it was very hard for a woman in the 70s, then you went to Justice Hansen and you clerked for her, and she had all women almost. Not that she discriminated against men, but she was an advocate of that. But people would say to her, wow, what would you have done if you had just gone from law school, as if you could in the in the 40s? And she would say, I wouldn't, the, the best prep for being a good judge is to have lived on a farm and been involved with your father and husband in farming and raising children and dealing with them on a farm. And that was what made me a, uh, I think, a good judge. So all of these experiences you can't quantify is what I'm trying to say that on our traditional metrics that we tell young women You've got to go through this cursus of norm. You've got to go to a good school. You've got to get a professional degree. Then you've got to go get this job. Oh, and by the way, you have to have 1.6 kids, <laughs> two kids or one. And then you've got to split this and you've got to do this and you've got to do this. And we're putting so many burdens on because we don't value what's really important. Right. And then if you read, you know, I mean, Camellia Pallia, for all of her eccentricity, was a really brilliant writer. She was demonized by feminists, but she made a, in cultural personae and a series of essays, she really pointed out that early on there were some brilliant artists and, and philosophers and playwrights and historians that saw in this Western paradigm that there was a, a partnership. And her, her main thesis was there was something brilliant about men, but also toxic. And it was important for women to not just be, you know, playthings or servile, but to have some uh, chance of either self-education or tutorials to be able to talk to these husbands, but more important to restrain their innate excesses. That, in other words, to suggest that we want you to be creative. We want you to be dynamic. We want you to be forceful. We want you to be an adventurer. We want you to get in a ship and sail across the ocean. But be careful. Be Have some compassion. Have some mercy. Have some balance. 
We want we you, when we raise these children, we want you to make them physical. We want you to make them audacious. We want you to make them to take risk. But we also need somebody to say, "Wait a minute, you don't have to do that," or "Don't be." And that was the role that women played. And then feminism, she argued, came along and denigrated that absolutely central role of a partnership and one of the reasons was not just as naomi raleigh is talking about unhappy women but we started to get unhappy men and there was no there was no balance in their life and whether it was you know shooting people in um shooting people in chicago or certain traits and we started to not have that partnership. And then when feminism took over, rather than seeing the positive aspects of maleness, we 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 demonized maleness. These feminists who were competing as men in the workplace for jobs and spoils of capitalism and the whole thing, they began to denigrate their competitors rather than their partners. So we came up with this idea of toxic masculinity which had a deleterious effect on young men. Today, they've been so demonized. And what she was saying was, you want masculine men, and you want masculine men in the context of of confident, assertive female partners. And between the two, you get the perfect balance. You take women out of that equation, and you say that they're the equal of men, and they're going to act like men then not only are they going to be unhappy contrary to nature, but you're unleashing men uh, in the excess. And so that was a very radical idea, although it had support throughout Western culture and literature, and she was demonized and treated very terribly. She's a brilliant writer. I don't agree with her politically, but it doesn't matter because she was so talented. And she still writes, but that was one of her arguments. And The other thing, just very quickly, Jack, so there was a critique of feminism that sex was a subservient service. So, quote, unquote, males sowed their wild oats, and then the poor virgin had to stay home with only one sex partner in her life while this cad came back. First of all, that was a caricature of what was true. I think my grandfather literally never saw another woman except my grandmother, right? And that was sort of the way Americans were, most Americans. But the point I'm making is that so when the female adopted the sexual ethos of the male and as if she were a biological male, the woman who was pregnant. So if a woman was to be promiscuous at the same degree as a male, then there were consequences biologically the male didn't face, i.e. pregnancy. And a male, if part of the species genetically is trained instinctually to bond with a child, and the male is telling the female every time she gets pregnant to get abortion so she can go back into the sexual cycle again very quickly, then she gets an abortion, she's told. But culturally, that's a wonderful thing to do, and that makes you equal with a man and empowers you. But instinctually she has second thoughts of, of terminating a life right. and the male doesn't have that responsibility kind of he's off the, the man world. right yeah i remember i won't mention any names but there was a friend of my parents and he was a teacher and he was kind of a cad 
and I was in high school and going into college. And he came over one day, he was teaching at a community college. And he said this to me, hey, I hear you're going to UC Santa Cruz. It just opened. I said, yeah. I said, you're going to have a ball. I said, why? And he said, women, they're going to have sex with just as much as men. There's no requirement. You can do whatever you want. I mean, it's not like you're going to have to go spend $5,000. And I, I was kind of dumb. Selma High School, rural high school. I go, what do you mean? And my mom was listening to this, and she was appalled. She goes, stop right there. And my dad was kind of laughing at it. And he goes, no, no, let me finish. So you go there, Victor, and you, you don't have to go out to dinner. You don't take a girl out to dinner and a date and then get to make out. That doesn't happen. No. And if you get her pregnant, she gets a portion. And you don't have to, to court. I said, court? I never heard that word. He goes, no, they come to you. <laughs> and so I got to UC Santa Cruz. And guess what? I he watched was... this thing. Right. And all of these women in the co-ed dorm were insisting as feminists that the sexual the sexual revolution had liberated them. But then I started to notice things that we were, UC Santa Cruz in 1970, 71 was one of the first places with a very strange virus broke out, herpes. And there was a team that came and we were interviewing everybody in the dorm if they knew anybody or they'd seen this mysterious, insidious virus. And then that was one of the first places after Robe v. Wade during my college career where you can get an abortion on demand. And I watched this stuff go on. It made me read Greek and Latin more and more and go home and work on the farm more and more on weekends. <laughs> yeah. The point is, as an observer to this, I thought, man, this is destructive. This what? is a godsend for males. Because right. I would watch these creepy guys that kind of got stoned and then they would meet women and you wake up in the morning you're up there you know taking a shower on a sunday morning and there's a guy and a girl in the co-ed bathroom taking a shower together and then a week later he's with another girl and then a week later he's with another girl another girl and he's he's not spending any money he's not taking any care in the person he's not taking them out he's not and when you mention that to the guy and i used to mention that i go what the hell are you doing and they'd say oh wow I'm way beyond what you guys do in Fresno. Ha-ha. And I'd say, well, what would that be? And he goes, well, you you go get your car, and you go ask her for a date the next Saturday, and then you go take her to a dinner, and then you take her to a movie, and then you're lucky if you make out, and then it's kind of like a reward. You spend money, and you're buying sex. I said, no, maybe you're trying to develop a relationship with somebody you might be compatible with. Oh, well, there's no better way to do that than to F them, you know? And that was the attitude. And it was destructive. It was absolutely destructive. And yeah. it was passed off as liberation. Yeah, the melody, that, that's melody lingers on. No, that's a, well, that's a, ter a terrific rant, Victor. I don't know that you've ever had a bad rant. Um, thanks for that. You know, um, we're going to move on, uh, uh, talk a little about uh, politics. A lot of people have already voted in America, but still a lot believe in showing up on quote-unquote, election day and actually voting on election day. So uh, pre-election politics is still pretty pertinent. And Victor has written a um, most recent uh, syndicated column is called uh, something about switcheroos, which I don't know how if that's in the dictionary yet, Victor. 
but switcheroos should be in in it. Uh, I thought but, that was but, a Bronx term, the great switcheroo. Well, it could. Be, I mean, listen, I heard uh, P.T. Like, Barnum like, or something. Yeah, like first cousin of twenty three Skidoo, I think something like that. But hey, anyway, if the switcheroos of the two parties is the column, and, and we're going to get Victor's explanation of what this switcheroo is right after this important message. <laughs> VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, I, while you're talking, I'm gonna I know I'm gonna look up and see if PT Barnum ever said anything about switcheroos. Uh um, maybe it was you, WC Fields or somebody. Okay. I don't well, know. It, it, it sounds like more like WC Fields. That came anyway, from my grandfather. Oh, it's a it's it's uh I think everyone knows what it means. The switcheroos of the two parties. So Victor, this is a piece you you write for American Greatness, a, a shorter piece every day, every once a week, and that becomes your that's essentially a syndicated uh column that gets syndicated. And uh, your contention in this piece is that the the two parties, the Republican Party and Democrat Party, have changed. They've uh, maybe taken peace from each other. And by doing that, um there are going to be profound consequences and we're going to see those consequences um i believe we will um in a week victor what are the switcheroos of the two parties well let's take the caricatures of the democratic party for a hundred years versus the republican party the caricature that is the attack on each from their counterpart the attack on the republican party was it was a silk stocking blue stock i don't know which is the right adjective stocking but the idea the, was the silk silk stocking silk was sto the old republican district in manhattan at john mm -hmm. lindsay yeah so yes. it was the silk stocking district yeah yes and upper east side no uh, yes upper east side upper yeah. east side so the right. idea was that the republican party was the J tom dewey or the rockefellers or people like that were aristocratic they had money they had the bushes they had gone to the right schools they were very polite they were brought new england manners and when they lost they did so nobly and they didn't stoop maybe george hw bush had to get lee atwater in there but usually they would you know they they lost nobly sort of like mitt romney in 2012. okay and the and they didn't appeal they were always called racist or elitist or they all and then went and and you know and when they campaigned they always wanted to lower the capital gains rate not that that wouldn't be a good thing but that's what they were fixed and we're going to reform social security 
that was good too because it was on stay it was unsustainable but but unfortunately those were easily caricature positions and the democrats were the working man the lunch bucket the union guy at the steel mill that's who we want to make sure he gets social security and disability and workers comp we called it and we're going to make sure he got the gi bill and we're going to make sure he has federal housing support it was all good okay and if you that went on until the 1990s in the case of the democrat you look at the hillary clinton and bill spoke at the 92 and 96 democratic conventions third way remember that jack third way democratic uh populism dick yeah, dick, dick morris's uh, strategy yeah, absolutely yeah. close the borders so you don't bring in illegals uh caesar chavez doesn't want them either we don't want to bring in illegals because they drive down wages and they hurt the union man remember that and we had all these guys like well you know mayor daly's an sob but he's our sob that kind of stuff and uh that's not true anymore the democratic party is a party of the subsidized poor and the upper 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 professional classes and the very rich and i'm saying that on hard data you look at zip codes and how they vote by income or you look at congressional districts per capita income they're all blue and when you look at billionaires or you look at the uh, fortune 400 and you see who's on there and what they're doing and who is what it's the left the left in professional sports the left in the corporate boardroom the disney's the delta airlines the american airlines and what their ceos say and they are pushing this woke revolution okay the davos cloud they're all billionaires that party then is the party of the utopian elite that's never subject to the consequences of their own ideology they have become the caricatures of the old republicans and they're going to suffer the same fate as a minority party so in this election what i'm suggesting is that old democratic lunch bucket issues can i support my family on the salary i'm making can i afford a home can i feel, uh, afford to fill gas in my tank as my wife and kids and me safe when i go downtown no 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 do I have a good chance that I'm not going to lose my job because my employer is going to hire somebody cheap? No, 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 no. Just this week, Sun Valley had some people flown in from Peru, and their argument was, where are they? These are illegal aliens, and why are they undercutting wages? We can't have housing for people who don't have enough money in Sun Valley, Idaho. So that's the Democratic Party, is it? and that's why Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates Jeff, they're all leftists, Lisa Jobs, and they all have wonderful utopian ideas because they don't worry about filling their gas tank except their private jet gas tank. They don't worry about the schools that the middle class goes to or the indoctrination because their kids are at prep school and they're on the board. And if they're being indoctrinated, it's because they want their kids to be indoctrinated. They don't give a damn about public school kids. If they make fun of walls, that doesn't mean that Barbara Streisand won't have a big wall around her place on the PCH. If they want to make sure you have climate change, climate change, climate change, that's because they live in 70 degree weather or they're like Al Gore and they got a huge electric bill. If they say that taxes aren't bad, that's because you're John Kerry, you can move your boat around to skip, you know, or you can be Al Gore and sell your cable news before the new capital gains rate takes effect. 
they're hypocrites. So, and the Republicans suffered from all that. Now the Republicans have seen this void, and they said, nobody's speaking about the chumps and the dregs and the irredeemables and the deplorables and the clingers. And lo and behold, the much caricatured billionaire Donald Trump saw that on that stage in 2015. And they had a very impressive list of uh, on-hands governors, Chris Christie, Scott Walker, Marco Rubio as a senator, and then none of them saw it. And he basically said that we're going to be a Jacksonian nationalist populist party. And we're going to oppose free but unfair trade. We're going to oppose open borders that drives down wages. And we're going to oppose optional military engagements that don't result in strategic resolution but fall inordinately on the working classes who have to go over there and fight those wars. And we're going to try to reform Social Security but not say a word about privatizing it because a lot of people count on it. And we're going to try to lower taxes on the middle class as well. We're not just going to lower capital gains. So that was the kind of the message. And it became a democratic message, kind of, in the sense that it was for the middle class. And then the this is really important. The main thing that came out of that MAGA agenda that everybody characterized, it's so funny, Jack, because it substituted class for race. So right. why the left was saying, you're racist. Right. You're xenophobic. Suddenly, 40 to 45 percent of Hispanics were voting for MAGA candidates. I think it could be in some races 50 to 55. Now we're looking at 20 percent of African-American males will vote Republican. That would have never happened to John McCain. The only person who came close was Jeb Bush or, uh, on the Hispanic vote for a while. He was married to a Mexican-American person. But the point I'm making is that once you say you're for the middle class, all the middle class, then people start to say, I'm in the middle class first, and I'm black second, or I'm brown third, or I'm Asian 15th, right? And it's an ecumenical message. And what are they doing? They're doing the old 116th drop rule that, oh, we're so we got to worry about Oprah and Meghan Markle and LeBron. They're, 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 they're the victims of racism. No, they're not. They're some of the most culturally privileged and pampered people exactly. in the United States. God. So those parties have switched. And the result is we're going into a midterms in a week. And guess who is talking about you can't afford hamburger at the store. You cannot afford to fill up your tank. You cannot afford to buy heating oil this winter. You cannot be safe in your own neighborhood anymore. The Republicans are. And what are the Democrats talking about? They're talking about the concerns of the very elite. Let's think about it. Climate change. Men should be able to, biological men are not biological men. They can compete in women's sports. Drag shows. That's really important in schools. We got to make sure that Joe Biden just met with a transitioning male to female. Yeah, he said that was one of his, inter his interests. So yeah. they have gone into the boutique of the wealthy. Abortion is a concern for everybody, but they don't want that to be a concern of everybody. If they did, they would support Roe versus Wade and allow the people, the people, the Democratic people, the demos to vote in their individual states to decide how they, the demos, cared about abortion. They don't want that. 
They're talking about a national abortion law. That's what they're angry about. And that national abortion law, believe me, will be abortion now, in the past, and forever to the last day possible of birth. That's what they want. And you know who doesn't want that? The average person doesn't want that. Right. And so they are not Democrat. And they have switched. And they're going to pay a price because they're going to lose in this midterm because the middle class has no more affinity. No more affinity. No more affinity with Marine Dow. No more affinity with, I don't know, Kamala Harris. They're not going to listen to Cory Booker. They don't listen to Oprah. They don't listen to the Obamas. They don't listen to John Kerry. They don't listen to Al Gore. They don't listen to all these multimillionaires. Right. It's funny. Obama was, uh, as we're recording, again, today, Sunday is October 30th, and he's been out on the on the uh, stump for some candidates up in Wisconsin and <laughs> elsewhere. But I can't I can't see can't see how he moves the needle for any candidate. And I I'm going back a little bit, but I remember when he uh oh my it was the special election in Massachusetts that yeah. Scott Brown won and Obama was like a total freaking dud out there. Um actually I think he hurt the hurt the cause the one cause he actually helped by campaigning was in in england when he he attacked brexit and it and it guaranteed the the passage of brexit everything he did people forget about barack obama he came in with a super majority in the senate he lost the most seats except for 19 i think 38 than any president in history 63 seats And by 2014, he had lost the Senate, he had lost the House, and he'd lost 1,100 state, regional, and local races. People had turned on him. His popularity was in the low 40s, just like where Trump's was, if not lower. And then he did a brilliant thing in 2015. He saw the unpopular, high-negative Hillary. And he saw the unpopular high negative personal Trump. And he saw the media tearing down Trump and Trump tweeting back. And he thought, people are going to get sick of this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check out. I'm not going to do anything my last year. I'm going to play golf and I'm going to be above it. And people said to themselves, hey, you know what? The longer I don't see or hear Obama, the more I like the idea of Obama. Right. First black man, articulate, and as Harry Reid and Joe Biden, the ultimate racist, said, oh, he's, you know, he doesn't have to talk like a Negro. He's articulate. Well, that role he played, he played that I'm going to be an acceptable, iconic figure, but I'm not going to get down into the mud of this campaign. And you know what happened? He came out every once in a while, very wishy-washy, neutral. And he left office at about 50%, if not higher. What he really wanted to do, and he went to Georgia Jack just as an excursus, and he said that Herschel Walker was a celebrity that wanted to be a politician. And that was projection, because he was a politician always that always wanted to be a celebrity. Absolutely. And he wanted to be wealthy, and he wanted. that's why he brought all of those rappers. He brought 
all of the professional athletes. He brought the movie stars in there all the time. He was starstruck. And as soon as that guy, he was cutting deals that last year that would have got Donald Trump impeached. Netflix, advisor for this, book deal. He had everybody coming in, trading on the prestige of authority of that office. He left, and guess what? Four years later, the guy was worth over $100 million. He owned a 7 to $8 million Caloroma mansion. He owned, I don't know what it is. You can't believe the left because that. if you look at that 40-acre Martha's Vineyard estate, 2,000 gallons worth of propane tanks, right. they said it was only worth 12 or $14 million. It's oh worth more God. than that. 40 acres on Martha's yes. Vineyard? They just they always do that. The lot, yeah. Remember, the line is innate to the left. Yeah. And so they just, and then he went to, that wasn't enough. So he had a Chicago mansion. He didn't want to live there anymore, of course, because the conditions of which he advocated had left Chicago and, you know, it was gangland again, like the 1920s. He wanted nowhere near it, but he did want his big monument to himself where he pushed that self-indulgent narcissistic library in a very historic park that had a lot of community people outraged. And then he went, got his fourth estate in Hawaii. And what is his curses of norm? After doing all of that, he starts to read and he discovers that these leftists, they said, you know what? This could have been done with Barack Obama. We could have had open borders. We could have had transgendered athletes. We could have had uh, no bail. We could have had defund the police. We could have had shutting down. Remember Barack Obama said, I'm going to shut down coal and your energy, electricity. Uh, he didn't do it. We could have had Stephen Chu. Remember he said, we want to get gas up to European levels. He didn't do it. But Joe Biden, good old Joe, the guy he made fun of. Joe, don't count on Joe. He always Fs it up. Remember that? He's out-progressed, out-left Obama. And so Obama got really jealous. Right. So he every once in a while, what he does is he ventures out of his estate and he'll go to a funeral and he will give a harangue and hijack the eulogy and talk about the Jim Crow relic called the filibuster, which he used in 2006 to filibuster Justice Alito. Thought it was great then. And he will start sounding like he is Barack Obama back in Chicago, get in their face showing up outside of the executive bank executive's house, yelling and screaming with a megaphone that he's redlining. That's what he likes to do every once to one or two days. But you know what? People don't listen to him anymore. They know that he's sold out, that he's a wealthy guy. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. And he doesn't make any sense. And the move, the party moved on and became more left. And he didn't lead his crusade. And he left it to a non-compost Menta's doddering old fool that's getting the country further left than he ever did. Right. And he's jealous. And so he says stupid crap like Herschel Walker. And he said, you know, just because you're a celebrity and you're running for Senate, that doesn't mean, you know, that you're qualified. If you know, you're going to vote for Herschel Walker to pilot a plane just because he, I thought myself, well, we have a candidate in Pennsylvania, Barack. Do you want him to pilot a plane? You have to be able, you know, is that what you're saying? Why should we vote for John? F what talents does he get have? on a plane? Never mind pilot. Plane. Yeah. <laughs> Getting on him would be like going to the guillotine. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's what he is now. He's reduced himself to a sellout caricature and he knows it. 
and he can't give up his estates. He can't give up his private jetting. He can't give up going out, you know, and seeing all these friends from Hollywood on their yachts. And every once in a while, he has to go and get his street cred back. So he dips his toe into an election. He sounds, you know, he's got that fake Southern African-American patois that he goes back to. Sing-songy kind of. And he starts, you know, and no one pays any attention. And it's been really good for Herschel Walker. I predict that Herschel Walker will win by three to four points and Barack Obama will help him enlarge that. Do you think Hillary, let's just talk about one little blast from the past. Uh, She's stuck her nose in um, (laughs) more pronounced in the last week or two. First of all, two, two, one, one is mouthing this uh, democracy will die if Republicans win. Essentially, this are uh, you hear this on MSNBC and CNN, and then what the hell else was she uh, babbling about? Oh, the elections will be stolen. Yeah, I like I think the one she thing she a- did though. You got to give her credit. Okay. okay. All right. So I'm they're ready. all election denialists. I right. mean, think about it. I mean, Jimmy Carter said that the election was rigged in 2016 and trump was illegitimate she said it was he was illegitimate jill stein you know sued so barbara boxer said the election was illegitimate in 2004 i think benny thompson the head of the january 6th he's an election denier denialist he voted not to accept ohio's ohio's uh, yeah. results in two raskin is raskin on the all of them is. Yeah, yeah he wrote yeah. a book about <laughs> i don't know remember that dick cheney that had stole the election so that's his that's Liz Cheney's new pal now. But my point is that they're all election denialists, but she did something unusual. She not just denied that Donald Trump was legitimate. She done, didn't just join la resistance. Uh, la resistance, la resistance, I suppose, if she's using the Italian or Spanish or French form. But uh, and she didn't just say, hey, Joe. Biden, if you lose the popular vote, don't accept it. The election's rigged. But she's doing, she's preemptively, as a, she's a preempting election fraud. So she's saying that two years down the road, if the Democrats right. lose, it's rigged. Yeah. That's pretty creative. Why not do it six years? Right. Why not, you know, do it 10? Do you have any doubt she, she has a, she sits around with some kind of crystal ball in her house with like no, a coven, I know what she, a Ouija I know what board. She does. she does this. She sits there in that big house, and she thinks all of her ill-gotten uranium one and uh, all her ill-gotten gains, all the Russian collusion, and she's the face of Dorian Gray. That woman has been Amen. going back to all of those rigged, Petty, minor little scams when she was in the Rose Law Firm and her cattle law, trading futures, cattle trading. Oh, I just I read the Wall Street Journal and yeah. made a hundred thousand dollars from Chelsea's education. Yeah, you couldn't replicate it. No Remember one could the Rose replicate. Law. I don't know where the law. I don't know where those law records. Oh, I was vacuuming the floor in the White House, and they showed up on the floor. Who yeah. knew it? And all of those scams. And then she was senator, and they remember they part they pardoned the Puerto Rican terrorists, right, and so right. she could have the Puerto Rican vote. And then she was second. Then she had the hey, secret wait, excuse email. Me. Think about that, Victor. 
Think about that. The people that shot up Congress that actually shot and <laughs> killed congressmen were, it was a priority to. Oh, yeah. To, oh, to yeah. free them. That should come up in, in some degree. She was, this, a, she was going to be the brilliant senator from New York. And then she she ran in 2008. Remember 2008? Then she had the Boilermakers and Bowling Hillary. And she was your working woman. And then she's, I don't think, I don't think Barack Obama is a Muslim. Remember that? Yeah. And and then all the left turned on her and said, we hate Hillary. She's going to deny the first black man the chance. And Amazing. she wouldn't concede. Remember that? She actually and, were holding out from uh, Michigan. Uh, the, 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 uh, Michigan exactly. defied something. They, they, their, their delegates didn't count. because uh, They didn't forget. count. Yes. Right. And then she got in and she thought, you know what? I'm Secretary of State. And we're not going to worry about, you know, a million here, a million there, Bill Clinton going off on the Epstein jet. And all. We're not going to worry about it. We're going to make big money. And so people thought she's secretary of state now, but she's going to be president for sure. So I'm an investor. So all of a right. sudden we hear that she signed away. What was it? 20 percent of North American uranium one holdings. And to the to the Russians, and all of a sudden, Bill Clinton's getting five hundred thousand dollars for a twenty minute talk in Moscow. Right. And then we we hear that after she leaves the Secretary of State, she's getting. I think I wrote a column about it, it was a hundred thousand dollars. It was for fifteen minutes on Wall she Street. She was she. I know she spoke at my kids' UConn up here in Connecticut. Two hundred thousand bucks. And, yeah, she and, was and really could... spiking universities. Gosh, oh, yeah. she was getting these horrible uh, honorarium. I mean, they were obscene. So she was the biggest. And then she moved into that mansion, and she had that list of corporate gifts. You know that they were need. This corporation should give me this silver, and this person should give me this place set. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So she was always a grifter. Always. And what is she doing now? She's sitting there at her, in her mansion, and to know her is not to like her. She's thinking, I did everything right. I'm a multimillionaire. My daughter married kind of a weird guy from a weird family, but she's a multi-multi-millionaire too. And I didn't divorce Bill. I need, I'm still a Clinton, even though I know that you know, he made me a multi multi millionaire and he made me what I was because I used his name. I dropped the Hillary Rodham's crap as soon as I went national. So I'm not Hillary Rodham anymore, or not even Hillary Rodham Clinton. So she looks at her life and she says, But you know what? I lost the presidency two times. And that should not have happened in a fair and just world. The first time I was robbed by this upstart from Chicago who played the race angle. And my husband was right. Remember that, Jack, when Bill Clinton reportedly, I think it was in someone's Ted Kennedy's memoir, someone said, Bill Clinton said, that guy would have been serving us coffee just a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and right. now he stole Hillary, you know, he stole Hillary's nomination. That was a sure thing. She had the money, she had the Hollywood, and then Barack Obama, he was sort of, you know, like Frank Sinatra in those old cart. <laughs> Remember those Looney Tune cartoons where Bing Crosby is the crooning rooster? Yeah. And then Frank Sinatra comes in and steals all the chicks. Well, that's what Barack Obama did. He came in and he stole all the chicks from the old rooster uh, singer, crooner. And <laughs> so she blew up and then she thought, you know what? 
I got to wait eight best years of my life for my term because this guy's going to get reelected and I'm going to go. So she did the secretary of state, keep your enemies, you know, closer than your friends. Obama was right about that. And then she ran. It was a sure thing. And then he stole the election with the Russians and I lost. And then I could have run again, but they, they, they talked me out of it and I could have beat Trump, but they wouldn't let me do it. So Biden came along. Look at him. And now what am I doing? I'm in my mid-70s. I'm drinking too much. I'm at my, and I'm just angry. I'm angry, angry. So Chelsea and I will do some TV shows, and I'll weigh in. I've written so many memoirs that the last one didn't sell a book. No one wants to hear it anymore. When I speak, nobody listens. But I could have been president. I should have been president. I will be president. That's what she thinks all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was uh, the unhappy. We began with talking about feminism and boy, oh boy, if that was the unhappy feminist, it's, it's Hillary Clinton. Hey, Victor, I think we have time for to talk about one more uh, topic. We'll, 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 uh, we'll talk about big tech. We have news about Zuckerberg, news about Elon Musk. And let's get to that right after these important messages. <laughs> There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, particularly to our uh, first-time listeners. Maybe I should spread that over. If you've been listening to this for two years and you are not yet subscribing to victorhanson.com, what's the matter with you? victorhanson.com, that's where Victor... Um, writes, well, everything he does is you can find links to it there, whether it's writings or appearances on on these podcasts, other podcasts, other TV appearances. But Victor writes exclusive material for that website. They're called Ultra Articles, and you cannot read them unless you subscribe. It's $5 to uh, test out victorhanson.com, $50 for a year. And you know, it's Still October. I should be talking about Christmas, but I know Christmas is coming up and sooner or later. And I, I actually believe if you know somebody who's a big fan of Victor, giving him a gift subscription to this to VictorHanson.com will be a great thing. Hey, you'll find links to um uh Victor's books there. And also there's a link for the Google store uh where you can uh, get the app for the website for your for your uh, phone or whatever devices are applicable. So victorhanson.com, go visit it. And as for me, Jack Fowler, I uh, write a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. I do that for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. We are intent 
on strengthening civil society. You should check that out, centerforcivilsociety.com. But my, my newsletter is a dozen uh, plus recommended readings, things I've seen the week before that I believe intelligent Americans might like to see for themselves. I have a link, I have excerpts of some of those articles. So check it out. You can sign up for it at civilthoughts.com. And rest assured, we do not sell your name. We're, we're just, I'm just, I'm just doing that in a non-transactional uh, communicative uh, weekly thingamajig, epistle, I'll call it. So Victor, um, big news the last a uh, couple of days. Again, we're recording on the 30th of, of October. Uh, Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. Uh, he is firing people to the great delight of any number of folks who have seen Twitter as a very intentional bulwark against uh, free speech in the public forum. A couple of headlines that have come out today. Daily Wire. Elon Musk set to unleash the purge at Twitter after request made to managers from PJ Media, it's happening. Elon Twitter's Elon's Twitter just fact-checked Joe Biden's official presidential account. You know, something that never happened before. So we have this. So we have Musk uh, um, now taking over uh, Twitter to the great uh, outrage of many on the left and any number of celebrities have said, "I'm I'm off Twitter and go find me at Instagram." Okay, that's one big tech thing. The other big tech thing is Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, who, as we know, his uh, Zuckbucks uh, helped uh, dement the uh, 2020 elections by you know, taking over local, local town, municipal, uh, city clerk, and other election official out, out operations. But um, I'm not crying. Uh, his metaverse project... Uh, has seen, and Facebook, whatever you want to call it, has seen significant uh, hits on Wall Street. I believe uh, he's lost $80 billion, that's billion with a B, $80 billion this year. Guy still has 40 or $50 billion left, so can't really cry for him. So uh, anyway, there's some thought there that, well, uh, hey, you know, Facebook, the, the great Leviathan, maybe it's not that great Leviathan. Leviathan, uh, Twitter, another lefty Leviathan. Well, it's it's uh, not that way anymore. So, Victor, here's a jump ball. Uh, we have about five minutes left. Um, do you, given these big tech trends or or you know, things that have happened to these these dudes and their institutions, do you do you still believe that Congress, let's say Republicans take over Congress, should should a Republican Congress still find ways to restrict uh, Silicon Valley and its control over some of these uh, public forums for free, free speech? It's not that they should find something. They should just treat it as they do other people without the exemptions that they do presently give it. And I mean that in two contexts. Number one, they are public utilities. If you say that Pacific Gas and Electric, to take the California example, or California Edison, cannot do what they want because everybody needs electricity and the electricity must flow on public lines across county and you know even state lines. Therefore, it has to be regulated. Then, my God, they're using the public airspace. They're communicating through the cyber world. They don't own the cyber world. They don't have a monopoly on it. They're using a... And you secondly say that 
people cannot exist in a sophisticated society without access, whether they're doctors or engineers or whatever, with searches. And if you know that Google is manipulating those searches based on ideological grounds and the order in which they present your results, or you know that Mark Zuckerberg or Twitter are using their social media platforms to suppress some information like Hunter Biden's laptop that can affect the way we live, then they have a, they're using a public utility in a, a, a way that's not necessarily public in the public's interest. So they should be treated like we do the gas company or, or anybody else. And so what would that mean? They would not be able to, to censor people and they would not be able to do the things they do, or they'd be subject to government oversight. I'm not, you're going to, everybody's going to say, well, you're going to get a bunch of left-wing people. Maybe, maybe not. The second thing is they, Mark Zuckerberg owns about 200 companies. So if you're a startup person in Silicon Valley or Austin, and you have a company, and it even remotely is a communications company, he's going to come after you. If you're let, if you're right wing, and that's rare, they're going to destroy you because we know from Parler, they just won't let you on the apps or True Social. They Google just now relented, but they will try to destroy you. But if you're left wing, they they're going to buy you out. And they're kind of like the 19th century railroad. So, yeah, they need some government oversight. And as I said earlier, I think Sammy and I talked about it. What they do is as soon as you get a Republican Congress and president, they talk like they're Milton Friedman. Hey, we're your Carnegie's. We're your Rockefellers. We're the guys that build America because we, we weren't restricted. We believe in your free markets. And then when they get the Democrats in, they said, doesn't matter. I know you guys want to regulate everything, but our money goes to you. We put $419 million in to warp the last election. So don't repress that because you're the benefit. That's what they do. So, yeah, they need to be broken up and they need to be regulated. Those are supposedly unconservative things, but they do because they're buccaneers and they're, they're really dangerous entities given the money they have. And you look at the market capitalization of Apple or Google or Facebook, and gosh, they're way, I mean, they're like the top five or top eight in the world. And so they they, they kind of ruined California because California, as I said, is, you know, it's basically a product of the middle class leaving illegal immigration coming in and that those trillion dollar companies running the state for their own particular utopian agendas that they're never subject to themselves. But yeah, they need to be regulated. And Elon Musk, they despise him. And that's so ironic. I do believe in the classical concept. If you're a Buddhist, you know karma. But if you're a classicist, you believe in hubris that incurs uh, nemesis or divine retribution and ends in ate or complete destruction. And so they were bragging on Elon Musk. He's a guy, you know, who's, who's cool. He has a Starlink. This is a weird next age type of internet. Wow, Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. Well, those billions that he's made are going to use to bring Twitter back into the, the normative range. And again, final thing, Jack, is that they're deep down inside, they don't think that Elon Musk is going to do what they did, Jack Dorsey. They don't think he's going to go and take Twitter and he's going to start suppressing embarrassing things about Donald Trump the way they did about Biden. He's not going right. to do that. They know that. 
Right. And he's not going to kick off. He's not going to, if somebody writes and says, if you get the new booster, you have a hundred percent protection from any COVID variant. We know that's a lie. But if somebody writes that, he's not going to censor that. But what they're afraid of is that what they're always afraid of. They're afraid that he might do what they would do if they took over a right wing company. Right. And that is they would be thinking, wow, I know what I'd do if I took over True Social or Parlor. I would blank it up. And that's what they're afraid of. Just like they're they're really afraid. There's an article today, two of them, damning Kevin McCarthy and the House because they might impeach somebody over the bogus charge that Joe Biden might have gone to the Saudis and had a secret deal, which they reneged on to pump more oil before the midterms. And therefore, he was putting his own political agenda ahead of the national interest of the United States and the way that he had also canceled student loan debt without a vote of Congress, which he just lied about and said he passed by one or two votes. Again, an example of putting your political agenda over the national interest, a crime in which we impeached Donald Trump for for a purported phone call. And they think that and they are terrified because they're afraid that if the Republicans take the House, not only will they clamp down on uh, some of these social media excesses, but they might do what Democrats most surely do. They might impeach Biden. We might tear up the State of the Union address. They might start subpoenaing people you couldn't get out of the subpoenas. They might keep the squad off committees. They can do all the stuff that the left taught us how to do. And they could even get rid of the filibuster, which Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer said, and Kamala Harris said that that was going to be their main agenda in the next Congress. And so that's what they're scared about, that Republicans might do what they do, and that makes them stay up at night. Right. As far as Mark, final comment, Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, that's it's just a classic literary topos that here's a guy that gets all of this money so suddenly. And he's immature, and he thinks it's because he's genius. Um, and he's not saying he's not a bright guy, but he gets this obscene amount of money, $100 billion maybe at one point. And then he goes on this cockamamie idea that everybody's going to wear, what, $1,500 helmet <laughs> or something. And then they're going to put on this these visors or these headphones, and then they're going to go into this alternate world where they're going to be dizzy. Right. And they're going <laughs> to get vertigo while they live in – and explore their fantasies when you can just open up a laptop or look at your phone and do all that anyway, almost. And he's going to give up or he's going to lose his edge on the one genre that made him a multi-billionaire to take the profits and go into another that's going to destroy him. So it's perfect nemesis. And of course, Elon Musk is sort of doing that, except that he's going into a proven genre. And he's going to say it doesn't make money, but it's very influential and it will make money under me because I'm going to take the Bay Area group of people and I'm going to fire those guys that have all those perks and are left wing. It's very funny. There was a bunch of people that were punking uh, the Washington Post and others because after the firing notices came out, a bunch of guys sort of said they were Twitter employees and they interviewed them. And I don't know if you saw that, but they said things like, 
like how can I make my Tesla payments now that <laughs> I don't have my Twitter salary or right. for solace I look at my Michelle Obama memoir well, who would ever think anybody would be so stupid to say things like that so yeah. they took them seriously and they were lamenting that these poor people were now suffering victims yeah, well, it's that is suffering for the one percent of the one percent, I guess. So that was yeah. that was the point of it. Hey, Victor, uh, that's about all the time we have, uh, other than our usual end of the show. Thank you to our listeners, and uh, it just I don't mean to uh, belittle by saying usual, but we are grateful uh, that people listen and the numbers grow, and the responsiveness and the communications are plentiful and growing. Um, folks that listen, um, whatever platform you listen on, thank you. Stitcher is one, Google Play. Uh, many people listen through, of course, through iTunes. Well, few, it still exists, but Apple Podcasts. And on that platform, you can rate the show from zero to five stars. And most people, uh, I'd say 99% of them, have left five star ratings in appreciation of Victor's wisdom. And, and many people do also leave comments, which we read, and uh, some have good, very good suggestions, which we try to follow. Uh, here's one uh, comment left by Rijor, R-Y-J-O-R, it's called Keeper. Podcasts come and go on my daily list, but VDH has been a keeper for a long time, since the days when his shows were in separate podcast channels, not only entertaining and edifying I actually feel smarter after listening each day. Victor is a true national treasure. Thank you, uh, Rajor, and you are correct. Hey, Victor, thanks. Um, Thank you, everybody. And, yeah, it was a terrific uh, show, terrific wisdom. Hey, we'll be back uh, again soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Thanks again.